What is the vision that God has placed on Christ Church Plano? What is the vision that God has placed on us here at Christ Church Plano? Well, the vision is this. God is calling us to be the church for the sake of the world. It sounds a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? You know, a cast Sunday, vision casting Sunday. What's the vision of the church going to be? The vision of the church is to be the church. You know, it sounds simple, and yet I think in the West we might agree that we've lost a real sense of what church is. Right? It's, it's not just that we don't, in our world, have a real sense of what church is anymore. But, I mean, our world doesn't even know who Jesus is in many cases. Right? The number of conversations I can have in airports and coffee shops, and I realize pretty quickly, this is a person who doesn't understand even the basic story of Jesus of Nazareth. It's like that notorious man who's down by the river one day, and he bumps into the preacher, and the preacher points to him and says, if you want to change your life, you need to see Jesus. And so the man wanders into the river and the preacher takes him and dunks him under the water and pulls him up and says, did you see Jesus? He says, no. So he dunks him again. He says, did you see Jesus? No. And he dunks him again and he says, did you see Jesus? And he says, no, but before we do this again, are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> right? We live in a world more and more well, what we've taken for granted is the church knowing who Jesus is, what the church is. We can't take that for granted any longer. You see, the challenge is that when we talk about being church, it can sound a little old-fashioned. It can sound dated. I mean, how do you possibly market being the church? How do you monetize being the church? The difficulty is in the past 40 years, here in America, in the West, since the 1970s, we've been busy trying to rebrand Christianity. We've been working really hard to try and take all the churchiness out of church, right, in order to make Jesus more palatable for our culture. But here's what's happened in the last 40 years of rebranding Jesus. The church in the West has declined at a rate that people cannot even imagine. Contrast that with the global south. You go into a place like Rwanda, where I was this last week, right? Rwanda, which is geographically, if you want to go sort of by, by length, it's, it's a little bit bigger than the, you know, broader, greater DFW area, right? Rwanda is a bit bigger than DFW, and they have no resources in the Anglican Church of Rwanda to, to, Rwanda to, to rebrand Christianity. They've just been the church for 40 years, just living into what it means to be the church. And do you know the contrast is that the church of Rwanda 40 years ago, DFW, 162,000 Anglicans 40 years ago. Today, 1.2 million Anglicans. And when they count in Rwanda and in Africa, they don't count by rosters. They count by people in the pews. 1.2 million Anglicans in church every Sunday in the Anglican church of Rwanda. Growth. Because they've focused not on rebranding Christianity, 
They focus simply on being the church. You see, this is what the early church did as well. When you look at Acts chapter 2, our text this morning, you see that the early church, the first generation of disciples, they were absolutely committed to living out what it meant to be the church in their generation. And they changed the world. See, when we look at this text together this morning, we ask the question of what is God placing on us as a vision here at Christ Church? The answer is the same. 2,000 years, it's not changed. The same vision. And how we enter into that vision is by seeing in this text, first of all, the early church, they knew their context. We see, first of all, that they knew the context and the challenges to which God had sent them. They were fully aware of the challenges before them to be the church in that first century. But not only did they know the context, they knew what their commitments should be. They knew where to put their focus. They knew how to not get distracted, right? Their commitment was to be the church and to live that out. But not only did they know their context and they know their commitments, but they knew that God was going to change the world through the church because that's what God has done throughout the ages. He changes the world through his church, his body, the bride of Christ. And this is for us too. So first, they knew their context. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. Just before the passage we read, we see Peter on the day of Pentecost giving his Pentecost sermon, explaining to the crowds what's going on now that Jesus of Nazareth has died, rose again, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And he says, knowing his context in verse 40, With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I mean, Peter's word over the crowd, over his context, over his culture, crooked. It's a crooked generation. The word in Greek is scolios, where we get the word scoliosis, right? It's a bent, twisted, broken, corrupt culture, a crooked generation. Peter's aware of it. All of the first disciples are aware of it. They understand they're living in Rome. They've got the entire pagan world against them. And they understand the challenge that this will be. They fully acknowledge their context. It's kind of like when we named our dogs. Some of you know that we have two dogs. Our golden doodle is named Tiglath Pileser III, affectionately known as Tiggy. And our mini schnauzer is Leviathan, affectionately known as Levi. Now, Tiglath-Pileser III, the reason for this, he was the king of Assyria that sacked Judah. And Leviathan is the great Hebrew sea monster. And the reason we named our dogs like this was to say that we name the beasts in our house after mighty monsters that God has tamed right? This idea of these mighty monsters you should be afraid of, but God has clearly tamed them. You know, I've got the king of Assyria sleeping at the end of my bed. Now, it reminds me of T.R. Glover, who thinking in terms of what the church was facing in the first century, like the tremendous odds that were against it. He writes this, he says, though St. Paul was sentenced to death by Nero, little did Nero know that a day was to come when people would call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. 
I mean, this is the picture of the early church understanding the context and the challenges they're up against. And yet they faced it down and moved forward just as God sent them. Right? It's not helpful whatsoever to pretend that the context we live in now as the church is not incredibly difficult. We live in a difficult time. You, you think of New York abortion laws. You think of a viciously divided nation. You think of injustices that are abounding. You think of a CDC report that says that in 2018, the life expectancy in the United States for three years running has gone down. We've lowered our life expectancy in the U.S. due to suicides and opioid deaths. We live in a crooked generation. It is difficult to be the church in America today. Maybe that's why God gave you a Canadian as rector. <laughs> I mean, seriously, living in Canada, you know, 10 to 15 years further down this secularizing agenda. My entire ministry life before coming here was living in a land where there was no place for the church left. Right? This is how difficult our context is. And we need to face it, just like the early church faced it. Peter called it a crooked generation. We need to understand the world we live in. Sometimes in our staff meetings, we'll talk about the Stockdale paradox. Some of you familiar with Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, may remember the Stockdale paradox. It's, it's based on uh, the life of Vice Admiral James Stockdale. This is one of the highest ranking members of the U.S. Armed Forces who was in a POW camp in Vietnam. Seven years in a POW camp. And when Jim Collins interviewed Stockdale and he named his principle the Stockdale Paradox, he said, "How? explain to me who didn't make it through those POW camps. And Admiral Stockdale said, well, that's easy. The optimists didn't make it. He said, oh, they would be the ones that would say, we'll get out by Christmas, but then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, oh, we'll get out by Easter. And then Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and all of a sudden it's Christmas all over again. And they died of a broken heart. And then he says this, he says, this is an important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. We need to face the context that we are sent into. As Jesus says in, Ma in, in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But fear not, I have overcome the world. See, they knew their context. But knowing their context, they knew with laser focus what their commitment was to be. They knew where they were to spend their time, to give their energy, to pour themselves in. Verse 42 of Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves. I love that word devoted. It's, it's, it's a rich, action-packed word. It means they took a vow. They took an oath that they were steadfast, that they were single-minded, that they gave their full attention to what? To these four things, four aspects, four actions, four behaviors. You could maybe call them envisioning language, four core values. And these four core values that are listed in this one verse, verse 42, this is what it means 
to live into being the church in your generation. And they gave themselves to it completely. See, we're told they gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Now, what's interesting with these four commitments is that, again, this kind of makes up what it means to be the church. And they're symbiotically related. You can't sort of pick your favorite three out of four. If any of these stops happening, you will ultimately run into the ground and cease to be the church. The apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Now, you actually see these on display every time you get coffee and cookies now at Christ Church. Because as you go into the fellowship hall, you'll see four banners. And that's essentially Acts 2.42. We just renamed them a little bit. Let me walk through them just to give you a picture of what we mean. See, they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostle is a sent one, right? Sent with authority. And so what the church was committed to was making sure that whatever they taught, that it was authorized, that it was the true gospel teaching of the church, right? So they they committed themselves to teaching that authorized story of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, his coming again in glory. That's what they taught. Now here, we've chosen to use the word formation. I mean, that's what our word is for the apostles' teaching. And the reason I like the word formation is it's, it's a word that begs the question, formed into what? Right? What, what is the word of God forming you into? And the answer is, to be like Christ. That all that the apostles' teaching is pouring out over us is forming us more and more from one degree of glory into the next to be more like the image of the Son of God. Right? One of my favorite verses I learned when I first was converted was Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living in me. My life, your life, being formed to be more like Jesus. It's interesting, as we look at the past year in our formation area, we've been incredibly blessed to see God moving. We had, uh, in our gateway classes, our our newcomer classes to get people organized and and start on that journey of discipleship and formation. We had 201 people go through our gateway class. This is a 28% increase over the previous year. We had 230 people go through our eight-week foundations class to prepare for baptism, for confirmation, for membership, to get fully engaged in the life of the church. That was a 54% increase over the previous year. And we had 149 people confirmed at the hands of a bishop, which is an 18% increase over the previous year. Those are the only stats I'm going to give in the whole sermon. But I just wanted to you know, put those out there. Right? The point is we see God moving and breathing in this area of formation. More and more people are being drawn to become like Christ. But see, the disciples weren't just committed to formation, the apostles' teaching. They were also committed to the fellowship. The fellowship, the word koinonia in Greek, it means togetherness, it means partnership, it means, well, it means family. Being a family, a family of faith together. The, the word we've chosen to use is the word belonging. Because again, in a divided, lonely world, people desperately need to know they belong. That they belong somewhere. And this is something that I don't know that 
we've done well over the years, but we're certainly digging into in a more intentional way going forward. I like to tell my ecumenical friends that Christ Church is big, but it's kind of like a medium-sized Baptist church, right? But for Anglicans, this is mega Anglican, right? Like this is mega church Anglican. It's a big community. And so to be together, to form that sense of belonging, we need to work at it. We need to have belonging events and moments. We need to have more belonging groups. And I will say that service opportunities, to serve alongside one another, this is a major piece of how we belong. Service is like the glue in a community. It makes you feel like you truly belong. Right? I think of Hebrews chapter 10 that says, um, you know, continually stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as has become the habit of some, but encouraging one another, especially as the day approaches. That sense of a community that can belong together, right? Being a belonging community. But again, the disciples were not just committed to formation, the apostles' teaching, not just belonging, the fellowship, but they were committed to the breaking of the bread. Now that's Luke's way of saying worship and communion. See, Luke writes the book of Acts, but he also writes the gospel of Luke. And how does the gospel of Luke end? There's Jesus raised from the dead, having borne the sins of humanity on his shoulders, dies, rises again, but appears on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. And they don't recognize him. Right? He's walking, they're teaching, he doesn't, they, don't, they don't know who it is. And then they sit down to a meal together finally and he takes the bread and he breaks it and their eyes are opened. And they run back to the other disciples saying, we recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Something about that act reminded them of the last supper, that moment when all of a sudden they began to understand because of what's happened over those three days, this is my body broken and given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It all came crashing down on them. And as a result, the church became committed to this thing called the breaking of the bread. By Acts chapter 20, you see that their daily, weekly routine was as they gathered to celebrate on the Lord's day, not just to read the word, but to have the sacraments celebrated, to feed as a community together on that heavenly banquet, to be reminded that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the absolute center of the cosmos. This is the most important thing a person can know and celebrate. And again, we, we call this breaking of the bread worship, right? We don't just have formation. We don't just have belonging, but we have worship. And I, I, I gotta say, you know, I've been here almost three years and I'm continually amazed by the worship that we are blessed with here. I had a newcomer after a service last year come up to me and after the 11 o'clock service in the narthex and he said, wow, you know, music and, 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 and you know, teaching and, and communion and wow. And he said, what is next week going to be like? <laughs> and I said, pretty much the same. And he said, no, 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 I, I caught you on a really high Sunday. And I said, no, you just caught us on a Sunday. This is what we do to the glory of God. God is at work here. And, and I don't say this enough. I, I, I need to thank all my staff and all of the volunteers that make up this church. But today, I don't do this enough. I need to acknowledge before you our music and worship staff and volunteers, Danny and Mark and Joy and the hundreds of volunteers that make this worship each and every week such a majestic, <laughs> a majestic God-honoring place. 
But not only were the disciples committed to formation and belonging and worship, but they were finally committed to what Luke calls the prayers. Now, you might think the prayers fits in with worship, right? You know, you worship, you pray. But the prayers here indicate the heart that becomes outward focused towards the world. You see, with prayer, you can't honestly look out on the world as a Christian and see the pain and the brokenness around us and not begin taking that pain and those burdens and bringing them before God. That's called intercessory prayer, bringing the needs and the pain of the world before God. All of a sudden, when we as Christians begin to actually pray about the world, what God does is he hands it right back to us and says, oh, good, you noticed. Now you go, right? Prayer actually catapults us into mission in the world. And I I like the word, and we use the word here, compassion for this. And I like compassion because it's a heartfelt word. It's like Jesus in Matthew chapter nine when he looks out in the crowds and he sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion for them. And that word in Greek, splanknon, literally means he was just torn up inside at the needs of those crowds. He was torn up internally. He had an emotional response to the brokenness and burden of the world. And so should we. Our response should be a church of compassion. Compassion that happens internally, which when we see each other's needs, we care for each other. That's called congregational care. But then there's compassion for those outside the church's walls. And that becomes mission, locally and globally. As I said this last week, I had the chance to be in Rwanda and to walk alongside the province of the Anglican Church of Rwanda and was just amazed and humbled at this. And the reason we were there was to look and see and discern whether this might be the place where we would partner for a global compassion effort, right? And so when you come to Mardi Gras in a couple weeks, you'll hear more about a partnership that we're gonna pilot this year with the province of Rwanda, where we're gonna go into a community and be able to build church-based preschools that will benefit hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children with no access to education, no access to sufficient nutrition or hygiene. We will be able, with a small contribution, what means so little for us will mean so much for them. But let me be clear, we will not go there to bless Rwanda. When we go, Rwanda will bless us. We have so much to learn about what it means to be the church in the world. Compassion. You see, this commitment the church made to being the church, to pouring itself in, not to get distracted, to say, listen, we've got four things we've got to do, right? We've got to be about formation. We've got to be about belonging. We've got to be about worship. And we've got to be about compassion. And that means we're going to be about the church. And it's interesting as we've lived into that here at Christ Church over the years, and as we're living into it now, our bishop, Bishop Todd Hunter, uh, looks at the work and the ministry and what God is doing in this place. And he has, our bishop's given it a name of what it means to be the church here at Christ Church Plano. And the, and the name he's given it is the name Cathedral. He says, this is meant to be, by God's grace, a model a picture of what the church can look like 
and grow into. We have so much more work to do, but what we can model and resource for the sake of other churches in this region. It doesn't change our structure. It certainly doesn't change our focus. In fact, to be honest, it makes my life a little easier because I've been the dean of Texas, which is kind of a regional dean role where I'm looking after all the clergy in Texas pastorally. And now that job goes to someone else. Bishop Todd says, no, you just be the dean of the cathedral. You focus right here. You focus on your people and the programs that they are running and live into what it means to be the church here in North Texas. You see, the church understood that they had to face their context and the challenges involved, and they had to be really crystal clear on their focus and commitments to be the church. But here's what's amazing is because of that, not only did they face their context, not only did they get really focused on their commitments to be church, but then they truly believed that God was going to change the world through the church. They believed it and they saw it happen. Verse 47. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As they lived into these values of being the church, the Lord added the number. And let's be clear who added it. The Lord added. It wasn't the church adding. There was no manipulation. There was no branding. There was no marketing. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this, of course, is what the whole Bible has been about, isn't it? That God, through his people, will reach the world. It goes right back to Abraham. There's Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God comes and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And then he says in verse three, and through you and your offspring, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is how God does it. He takes the people like you and me, broken, incomplete, by grace redeems us, saves us, transforms us, and makes us into his body here on earth, that the world can be changed through his church. I love how verse 46 says that they had the favor of all the people. In other words, the, the surrounding culture looked in on that early church, and, and, and it was attractive in kind of a weird way, I'm sure, a peculiar kind of attractive. Man, they are so different than us but there's something attractive about the way they live, about the way they love. The reason? Because the church, if it's living into being the church, looks more and more like Jesus. And Jesus is peculiarly attractive in this world. As we are transformed and made into his image, bit by bit through the work of the church, through the work of the spirit, we are becoming this peculiar, attractive presence in our community. As C.S. Lewis says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christs. If the church is not doing that, all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermon, and even the Bible itself is simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose than to make men into little Christs. And of course, if we look like Jesus, we're not going to look like the world, are we? We're not going to look like the world as we reject the world's false gods and instead enact the drama of salvation every time we gather. It's going to look different than the world. 
we will not hide our churchiness any longer. In this crooked world, we will boldly choose to look like the church. The church will always look different than a dying world if it wants to live for the sake of the world. It's like the girl who was visiting my church in Ottawa a couple years before I came to Plano. And she came in one Sunday and I could tell she was new and everything about her sort of screamed alternative lifestyle. And I ran up to her after the service and I said, I'm so glad you're here. And she said, I'm looking for God. And I said, that's great. And I said, now let me just ask you a question. Why did you possibly pick this place to look for God? You know, 130-year-old church, stone building, stained glass, dim, dark, freezing cold in the winter, boiling hot in the summer, right? So churchy. And I said, why would you come here? I said, just, you know, across the road, there's a church that meets in a movie theater. And then down the road, there's a pastor that's a hologram. And then, you know, further down there, there's a rock concert church. And she said, the God that I'm looking for would be found in a church like this. Now, here's what she's not saying, of course, is that God can be found in a building made by human hands. But here's what she's saying. She's saying, I don't want a God that looks like the world that world that has failed me again and again. I want the God who is sacred and holy and other and loves me anyway. That's the God I'm looking for. That's the God I will find in the church. What is the vision that God has placed on us at Christ Church Plano? It's it's simple to be church for the sake of the world. We look to the first disciples, nothing's changed. We are to know our context. We're to know our commitments, right? Formation, belonging, worship, compassion, being the church. And we're to believe that this is how God changes the world. And if it seems too great a task for you and me, it should. That's exactly where God wants us, in a position of dependency. Remember that this whole chapter of Acts chapter 2 is set in the context of Pentecost. The whole chapter is based on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the hearts of every individual believer and empowering us for ministry. When my family visited in 2016, it would just be three weeks from now, our first visit, this little incognito visit to Christ Church Plano. We sat right over there, and it was only a few minutes into the service when Monica leaned over and said, can you feel it? The Holy Spirit is in this place. This is the confidence by which we live as the church in this world. Jesus says in our passage from John chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. My father will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will live within you. As I look at what it means to be the church, I think of a song that I think should become part of our repertoire, if I may be so bold. And this song speaks into this very simple but very profound vision of God's call on our life here at Christ Church. 
Hear the call of Christ our Captain For now the weak can say that they are strong In the strength that God has given With shield of faith and belt of truth We'll stand against the devil's lies An army bold whose battle cry is love Reaching out to those in darkness So Spirit come, put strength in every stride Give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, for Christ will have the prize for which he died an inheritance of nations. This is our call, to be the church for this generation, to the glory of God. Amen.